Hello and welcome to Keeping Track. This is part two of a two-part documentary on Gaza and the Palestine question. This episode deals with the events surrounding October 7th, 2023 and its aftermath. The following episode is a collection of several interviews I conducted with academics, historians, refugees, activists and Palestinians. I would like to thank all those who contributed to the making of this documentary. Gaza, part two, 2023, what next? It didn't start on October the 7th. One could go back to 1948, 67, but certainly go back to the starting of the siege of Gaza in 2006 to 2007. There was an election. The results were not recognised. The Palestinians will say, well, we've tried everything. We've tried elections. Everything gets thrown back at us. So what are we supposed to do here? If you put 2.2 million people under pressure for 15 or 16 years, you know, 2.2 million people is an awful lot of people, but, you know, a couple of thousand or a couple of hundred are going to get really, really, there's going to be some kind of violent reaction. In the Gaza Strip, we have a population of ethnically cleansed people. All of them, if they actually go to the trouble of going to a room high up in one of the tower blocks of Gaza City, can see the lands from which they or their parents or grandparents were ethnically cleansed. What does any human feel in that situation? What does any human feel when added to that you actually have the gross conditions of shortage of food that Israel has imposed on these people? This is at a level, what's happening on Gaza, it's way, way beyond what we have to deal with in Lebanon. I'm looking at people today in Gaza, I'm hearing them saying things like, you know, well, I don't think I'll get out of this alive, I'm expecting to die. I mean, how many UN personnel have died there? And these are people working as aid workers. I cannot imagine that. You just don't know how you're going to react as a person. There is an element of that, like you can't just forget us, you can't just assume we're going to continue like this. So what do you do then? Well, you tell them I exist. It's unprovoked, but that's not the truth. Nothing ever is unprovoked. There is a reason to why it happened. We are at war since 1948. You cannot ignore that. People are speaking about the 7th of October as if nothing happened before as if it's something new. It was a scream for all of us to put the Palestinian case on everyone's life. What happened on the 7th of October is not about Jews and Judaism. It's about Zionism and settler colonialism and apartheid. Gaza is under siege since 2006 or 2007, and that's the biggest open prison in the whole world, with most populated area in the world. What happened is that citizens of Gaza, they don't have anything to lose. Is that sort of collective punishment justified? Well, international law tells us that it isn't. International law, these sort of things, they can matter in the long run, but it's really very minimal at the margins. As we've seen in Gaza in recent weeks, you know what, Israelis don't care. Um, and the Americans don't want to make them care. You know, but one of the major phenomena of the 20th century is the process of national liberation, decolonization, anti-colonialism. Basically, at the point of massive decolonization, you have the creation of Israel, which goes against, you know, the gist of self-determination through the expulsion and the violence against the Palestinians. Hi, I'm Jim Roach. I teach in the School of Architecture, Building and Environment in Technological University Dublin. I'm one of the co-founders of Academics for Palestine. Connect with academics in Palestine who might need our assistance and help and encouragement. But it's also we're supporters of the academic boycott of Israeli institutions that 
are involved in discrimination against Palestinians. In a few sentences, I would say most of the people in Gal, two, I don't know, half to two thirds of them are refugees from a previous ethnic cleansing when they were moved either in 1948 or 1967 when uh, Israel um, pushed them from their villages and homes in what's now, you know, what's now known as Israel. And they're refugees there. And they, um, since the election occurred in 2006, 2007, according to former US President Jimmy Carter, it was one of the fairest elections he had ever seen in, in, I believe, in the world. He was one of the monitors. And we know what happened then. What we hear happened is that there was a coup and Hamas kicked out the Palestinian Authority. It's not that simple. The world big powers refused to accept the result of the election and, and to work with Hamas. And I know a lot of people have this view of Hamas is that they want to destroy Israel. That is definitely in their charter. I accept that. But they, many of their leaders have come out and said they accept the state of Israel. They recognize the existence or the reality of the state of Israel within the 1967 border. And Israel has gone and extrajudicially assassinated some Hamas leaders who were willing to make peace. You know, there was the big four. They allowed Israel to have this incredible crippling siege on the Gaza Strip. So if you contain a people like that, 2014, in one of the last big wars, two and a half thousand people got killed then over 57 days or something. There was talk of a unity government between Hamas and Fatah. That's the last thing Israel wants. The last thing Israel wants is a united Palestinian people or polity, if you like. They really want to ethnically cleanse Palestine. And my concern is now that if they get away with this, they'll, they'll next turn on the West Bank. It was a big shock to me personally when that happened. I, I'm totally against the killing of civilians and taking up hostages, right? I'm an anti-war activist. I condemn the killing of all civilians in wars, right? I wouldn't get into the language that the media wanted us to get into at the time because it was on the kind of pretense that, oh, this is something new. This is now something new. And this is a start of, it's not a start of anything. I mean, it was an awful attack. Look, who couldn't be against it, right? But first of all, there's something strange about how they managed to do it, given the nature of the surveillance that Israel is able to put in place, you know? I think all the activists knew that this will be used really badly by Israel, and they'll pretend that this is the start of a new phase of them being persecuted as Israelis, as Jewish people, you know? And I, I think to see it like that is problematic because we tend to forget all the like this is the fifth war that has happened to the people of Gaza since 2008 2009 you know so if you think of a young person in Gaza let's say a young person who was 10 in 2008 right they're now what 20 22 23 and they've seen no hope they've seen five this is the fifth war they've seen and all they see is bombs raining from the air indiscriminate bombing buildings being picked up whole families being killed in their apartment blocks. And this happened two years ago again. They see when the people marched to the Great March of Return two years ago, peaceful, you know, peacefully asking to permission to go and visit their relatives, say, in the West Bank. We we saw how they were treated. Israel killed 180, 190 of them with sniper fire, you know. You have to understand how they feel that some of them would want to go and join a, a group that was willing to carry out that attack on, on October the 7th. That doesn't in any way justify it. It didn't start 
start on October the 7th. You know, it started, one could go back to 1948, 67, but certainly go back to the starting of the siege of Gaza in 2006 to 2007, because there was an election. The results were not recognized. The Palestinians will say, well, we've tried everything. You know, we've tried stone throwing. We've tried throwing stones at tanks and, and armored cars. We've tried elections and everything gets thrown back at us. So what are we supposed to do here? I mean, that's the way they're thinking. Now, I, I would argue, no, don't do that. What we need to do is build the boycott and investment sanctions movement in the West and fight your case that way. But I'm not going to moralize against a young man who has seen five wars since he was 10 and possibly had members of his family decapitated, killed, blown up, left in a wheelchair. I, I don't feel I, I have the moral authority to do that. Uh, well, my name is Conor McCarthy and I teach English in Maynooth University just outside of Dublin. I have a long history of interest in Palestine and Israel and of Palestine activism. I wouldn't claim to be a scholar. The Middle East is not my area of scholarly activity, although I am a scholarly expert on the work of the famous Palestinian writer, Edward Said. As I say, I have a long history of interest in, in Palestine. I was a founder member of the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign in 2001. And I was also a founder member of Academics for Palestine in 2014. And you'll know that Academics for Palestine is an academic group campaigning for the academic boycott of Israeli institutions of higher learning. Gaza is occupied territory. That has to be the kind of framework in which we understand what's going on. Obviously, what happened on October 7th was, for its victims, horrific and terrifying and violent. And I think it is historical. I dislike or I have a lot of problems with one of the Israeli framings of the story that refers to what happened on October 7th as a pogrom. You know, the term pogrom in my knowledge, has been you know, traditionally applied to riots and murders of Jewish people in Tsarist Russia, in the Pale of Settlement, in Poland in the late 19th century. Those pogroms were assaults on Jewish people, murders of Jewish people, looting of Jewish businesses that were sponsored by the distinctly anti-Semitic Tsarist state. What happened on October 7th is something different. I think one of the reasons that October 7th is so striking for Israelis is that this was one of the very first times in 50, 60, 70 years of history where war was taken into their territory. You know, even in 1973, when Syria and Egypt, you know, the common way that the 1973 war is framed is that Egypt and Syria attacked Israel. Well, in fact, they didn't attack Israel. They attacked territories that Israel had conquered in 1967, the Sinai and the Golan. I would condemn the murderous brutality of what happened on October the 7th. I think its brutality is, I've had a couple of conversations with people about its brutality. I think it's very striking. But I also would say that, you know, is a person, is, is one person attacking another person with a machete or with a knife? Is that any more or less brutal than a 2,000 pound bomb being dropped from 10,000 feet, the shrapnel from which will shred hundreds of bodies? You know, so I think some of these comparisons are, are problematic. I would condemn all violence, all killings of civilians. You have a pretty wealthy, highly educated, militarily extremely powerful first world state. I mean, a state that, although it's small, when you visit it, it feels like visiting California. 
basically, you know, a high-tech state, a state with an enormous military apparatus. You have that state, and that state is using all this extraordinary power, and of course also diplomatic and media power, vis-a-vis uh, -vis of people who don't have any state at all. There's some kind of Hamas government in the Gaza Strip, but there's not what you would, what the political theorists or the political scientists would recognize as a state. You know, there's no police force. There's no standing army. Gaza cannot really control its own borders. Those are all attributes of what we might recognize as a state, be it a democratic state or a dictatorial state like Syria or Saudi Arabia. So Gaza is home to 2.2 or 2.3, whatever it is, million stateless persons. The people in Gaza don't carry passports that allow them to cross international borders safely or unmolested. They don't have any of those safeties. Gaza doesn't have any sovereignty, which is another attribute of a, of a modern state. And I mean, in, in talking about things like jurisdiction and sovereignty, I'm not trying to make this, this complicated. What I'm trying to say basically is you have an extraordinarily powerful regional superpower, really, using its military apparatus to attempt to stamp upon a weak, defenseless, and stateless people. It's going on now, but it's gone on before in previous attacks on Gaza. And in, in other variations, it's gone on, you know, going back to the Lebanon war, or it's gone on in 1967. And it began, of course, in 1947 to 1949 with the first wars that accompanied the birth of the state of Israel. Back in the early 2000s, I don't know if Ariel Sharon actually used the phrase, but it was certainly used of him uh, when he was prime minister and he was, say, disengaging from Gaza and other things, but also engaging in very aggressive military policies vis-a-vis -vis the Second Intifada. People said that he was finishing the War of 48. Of course, the War of 48 wasn't finished by him in 2005, 2006. But you know, the political language in the Israeli political class now is quite explicitly that of finishing the War of 48. There are you know, Likud politicians who've called for a second Nakba. But that is the, you know, the ethnic cleansing of 47, 48, 49. The thing that really sort of strikes me about the present moment overall, and the thing that alarms me, is the kind of the coming together of a number of factors. Israel having, through this horrifying Hamas attack of October 7th, Israel having a most extraordinary causus belli, if you want, you know, a cause for or um, a reason for war. It has that. It has this enormous military apparatus. And in a way that is more unusual, it has extraordinary support from all the major Western powers, the United States, the biggest countries in the EU, like Germany and, and France, the United Kingdom. And it has ambivalence from other major powers around the world, like Russia and China. And when you combine those factors and then you listen to this dehumanizing and horrifying language coming from a variety of Israeli politicians, whether it's the defense minister, again, you'll be well familiar with this by now, um, you know, referring to Palestinians as human animals, or if you have the um, Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, saying that a whole nation is responsible for what happened on October 7th. That's a statement that breaks down the distinction between civilians and combatants. But this is what I understand to be the language that typically precedes either moments of ethnic cleansing or of actual genocide. Hi, I'm Jim Bowen. 
I'm a retired professor from UCC. I came to UCC in 1993, having lived abroad for more than 20 years. And uh, I retired at the age of 65 in 2017. March 2002, I was actually planning to go to the West Bank when suddenly the situation got much worse. And I decided I could do better by staying in Cork and setting up a group which would try to bring to the attention of the people of Cork the true horror of what was happening in the West Bank. I'm the sole remaining founder of the Cork Palestine Solidarity Campaign, but I've been involved ever since its founding. This is not to say that the killing of civilians is anything that I approve of, but let me just talk about one episode that actually has been highlighted when dealing with this breakout. People talk a lot about the killing of civilians at a music festival just over the border into Israel. There's some detail there which most people don't know, which you won't get unless you actually read the reports. That music festival was being held about a mile to a mile and a half from the fence, the cage that is Gaza, being held on the lands of a kibbutz, which actually, of course, was Palestinian land, don't forget. Right beside that kibbutz, there was an, an Israeli government establishment. What was it? It was the headquarters of the Gaza division of the Israeli army. It was the place where the military force that actually controls and in most cases directs the mowing of the grass or the mowing of the lawn. So these people held a festival right beside that. And there's another fact that you need to know. The festival was advertised in Israel without its precise location being given. The advertising of the festival was based around the fact that most people are assumed to have smartphones or if not, to have a friend who has a smartphone. All they were told was the festival was going to be held in a beautiful area in southern Israel. And so people were gathering in their cars and wherever, ready to drive to wherever the location was going to be when it was finally announced. And it was announced at 10.30 on the Friday night. Remember the attack started on the Saturday morning? I'm sure that it was already dark in Palestine by 10.30. So these people now drive to a site next to an Israeli military camp, a mile and a bit from the border of the Gaza Strip, to have a music festival, a festival of love and peace. Quite apart from anything that was going to come next, just think about it. Imagine having a festival just outside the cage in which people are incarcerated, the people who own the land on which you're having the festival. I'm sure that all of these kids who went to that festival didn't think about that, but that's partly a reflection of the nature of Israeli society. I don't know. I suspect that it's quite possible that given that the attendees of this festival didn't know until 10.30 on Friday night where they were going to be going, that the leaders of Hamas probably didn't know that this festival was going to be held next to this army base. If you can imagine Palestinian fighters, who, by the way, are entitled under international law to engage in armed resistance. Nobody's entitled under international law to kill civilians. Israelis are not allowed to kill the thousands of civilians they're killing to this day. The Hamas fighters who broke out are not allowed under international law to kill Israeli civilians, but they're certainly allowed to kill Israeli military personnel. Hamas decided that one of the places that they would attack would be this military base that actually has been responsible for massacring many of their families and friends. And again, I don't know the details, but just people need to know that the victims of the killings on the site of the festival were actually put in danger by the people who organised that festival. I'll tell you what my reaction was on the morning of the 7th of October. This attack... This breakout, this prison breakout, this slave revolt. That's what I want to talk about. It's a slave revolt or a prison breakout. These people 
are as human as we are. They're as clever as we are. They're as clever as the Israelis and the Americans are. They're as ingenious as the Americans and the Israelis are. They are not defeated and they won't be defeated. Somebody is going to have to come to their senses and say, these people need a just settlement. These people need just treatment. These people need hope. They cannot be parked in a cage forever. Will that be full justice? No, because full justice should involve recompense for the 75 years that they and their parents and grandparents have spent in cages watching while invading settlers, because that's what they are, while invading settlers live it up on their land. I want to say something. It helps explain why I really became an activist. Okay, I became interested in the history of Palestine as a teenager, but I became active because one of my heroes, the man who lived in the 20th century in Ireland, whom I admired the most, is a fellow called Hubert Butler, who was an essayist born in Kilkenny. I think he was born in 1900 and he lived until 1992. He had a very interesting life. He was a beautiful writer. I remembered when I, essentially when I started to become active, as opposed to just collecting information, which I've been doing for decades. I thought about Hubert Butler because in 1938, when the Nazis invaded Austria, Hubert Butler went at his own expense to Vienna and he worked with the Quakers there to help get Jews out of Austria before even worse things happened to them than had happened to them already. And I felt that this wouldn't go through my head at the time, but it's actually a relevant quote. Edward Said used to refer to the Palestinians as the victims of the victims. And I really feel that the Palestinians are the victims of our age. There are other victims who actually, unfortunately, are also being forgotten, such as the Rohingya from Burma. But the Palestinians are the victims of the victims of European racism. We have a special responsibility to make sure that we actually rescue them from the second-order effects of European racism. I thought, if Hubert Butler were alive today, that's what he would be doing. Most everybody will say this, that it's the result of a very long historical <laughs> relationship of oppression, dispossession, ethnic cleansing. You know, going back, we could start at 47, 48. You know, obviously, you'd have to consider the years of the mandate as well, but particularly in terms of the Nakba, when three quarters of a million people are dispossessed, villages are razed, you know, there are massacres, famous ones like Darussin, etc. And Gaza is a population, you know, 2.2, 2.3 million people. Most of them, 70, 80 percent of them are refugees or descendants of refugees. Since 2007, the Gaza Strip has been under siege. Very little goes in, very little goes out, constantly under surveillance. I went to Gaza quite often. Gaza was the biggest open-air prison, this is true. And I think... This would be my analysis, that the situation, you know, was getting worse and worse. Of course, there have been also other wars, <laughs> attacks on, on Gaza, 2008 and 2009, 2012, 2014, 2021, you know, where the infrastructure, you know, a lot of people killed, the a lot of the destruction. And very importantly, in 2018, when there was what's called the Great March of Return. So the idea emerged, we will, will march 
you know, on Fridays we will go to the fence demanding our right to return, because of course that was part of the deal that they, they were supposed to have the right to return. I mean, in, in, under international law they, they do have the right to return. But of course that was denied to them by the State of Israel. So they would go, it was completely nonviolent. It was like a protest. And how was it meant? It was meant by Israeli snipers. I think about 200 people were, were shot over the protest. It was also a time when the Israeli snipers, besides killing people, they were also aiming at the limbs of, of, and it was mainly young men. And so the increase in disability, the rate of disability amongst those living in Gaza really increased during that period of time. So what are you supposed to do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? So for me, that's the context within which you can understand what happened on the 7th of October. It was not unprovoked. And language here is very important. It was not unprovoked. and. For certain, what's happening in terms of the Israeli onslaught and carnage, it is not defensive. <laughs> it's way beyond defense. And that's why people are calling it, and the, and the Palestinians themselves talk about it as a second Nekba, or an attempt at a second Nekba. You know, when you listen to the people there, I mean, I know that, um, you know, through interviews, we're not going anywhere. Now, they, they've been moved from the north to the south, you know, but they have no intention of going, you know, escaping into Egypt or Jordan. Yusuf, a third-year PhD student. I am doing international law and human rights. I came to Ireland three years ago. I'm originally from the West Bank, a small village in the West Bank in Palestine. My family is still there. If you look at any violence um, of coming from the Palestinians uh, on 7th of October without giving it the proper context or the proper understanding of the context, then you are falling victim to this Zionist propaganda. You cannot say, oh, they just went crazy on that day. Palestinians went crazy. They went wild. They just attacked us and they are savages. They just do this and that. No, what happened is that they just wanted to do, I'm not justifying again, but I'm just saying that the context or the aim of all this thing was to get our prisoners out to free our prisoners. And this is like officially known, you know, if you search what is the reason behind this, it is that, not because Palestinians are, are bloodthirsty people or animals, you know. As a Palestinian, we've been under this colonization, the Israeli colonization of our land since 1948. So for 75 years, we've been colonized. And then since 1967, the West Bank and Gaza, they are occupied and the Israeli occupation is illegal. And of course, beside the fact that it's immoral, but it's also illegal under international law. And so it's not only occupation, but everyday oppression, everyday apartheid, everyday detention. They have 6,000 Palestinian prisoners. Two hundreds of them are kids, are children, and 40 or 70 of them are women. 
And so these prisoners, they are they are in Israeli jails. They don't have the right. They are not there for criminal activities. They are there for their political identity, for their identity as Palestinians. They have even laws to detain us. They have administrative detention, which is basically that Israeli occupation forces are allowed to detain Palestinians in the West Bank and from Gaza just based on suspicion, mere suspicion, which means that they don't present them to the court. They don't have the right, like they don't have the right to uh, go before the court because there is no accusation. Their files are secret, I'd say. They don't show any accusation and there is no limit to how many years they can imprison them and keep them in their presence. So we are living under this madness of occupation, colonization, apartheid and injustices. And all of a sudden, on the 7th of October, Gaza has been under siege for 17 years, which means that they don't really get to live their life or move outside of Gaza or enter, like uh, allow things to enter Gaza freely. And so this siege and five wars on Gaza all led to what happened on the 7th of October. So there is always a context to any violence that uh, happen within occupied countries or occupied territories. And so, of course, what happened to me as a Palestinian on October 7th was just a retaliation. It was a result of this endless unstoppable violence by Israel against us. The question remains, does an occupying country has the right to defend itself? Is it really there? I'm speaking international law. Is it there, really? It's not true. The occupying forces, they don't have the right to defend themselves. But let's assume that this is what they are doing at the moment. What can we see is that they are failing to retaliate against Hamas. What they are doing is they are depopulating Gaza. They are committing a genocide against the people, the innocent people in Gaza, without any want to stop them because they think they are above the law and they have the U.S., which is the greatest power in the world, behind them. So they are giving the justification as, yeah, what happened on 7th of October is a terrorist attack and therefore we have the right to defend ourselves. So let's go commit a genocide. But this is not this is not the proportionate response to what happened on 7th of October and there are many reports and there are many people they tell you like Israel is capable of retaliating in a way that they don't cause this much harm to the civilians but what we are seeing what we are witnessing is crimes against humanity we are seeing war crimes. We are witnessing a genocide. And there is no justification for that. Every Palestinian now is accused of this. You know, it's not just the Hamas. If you look at many European countries, it's forbidden to raise the Palestinian flag. What does that tell you? 
they equate our flag to terrorism. They equate our identity to terrorism. Why didn't they do that when Israel was committing crimes against us? What defines terrorism really? What is terrorism? Who, who gets to tell us that this person is terrorist, that that one is a freedom fighter or in a mission to spread democracy and human rights around the world? Who gets to define those terms? Definitely not us. I'm a class. I was born in Morocco, but I grew up in France. And I'm actually in a Master of Research in International Relations to be a researcher in the subject of international relation between Latin America and the Middle East. I grew up in an Arab household that was always advocating for Palestinian rights. I grew up hearing, listening, watching sometimes videos about the conflicts that were unfolding in the region, like in Iraq, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. I'm a pro-Palestinian activist. I have a very strong personal connection to this cause. I feel like for many years, Palestinians tried to make their voice heard. Like we have a few years back, we have the March of Return. That was a Pacific march in Gaza. Then many of the protesters were massacred. They tried, I feel like, everything to get hurt and people were hopeless and happened on the 7th of October. It was a scream for all of us to put the Palestinian case on everyone's lives because like for sometimes like we forgot that there was a problem happening in the Middle East, that Palestinians were losing their rights to live either in Gaza or in the West Bank. People are speaking about the 7th of October as if nothing happened before, as if it's something new as it's a scream from the Palestinian people so that people can see what is happening there for like 75 years because now we have a lot of historians forgetting the context between the 7th of October. There's a 75 years of occupation. They were deprived of their human rights. Many of the Gazan people that are now living in Gaza were descendants of refugees that were forced to leave their houses because of, of the Nakba. I feel like they want to complicate this issue. If we read a little bit about what is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we know that it's not that complicated, is colonialist situation. It's an oppressor versus people that are oppressed, oppressor and oppressed. And since the beginning, since 1948, it was never complicated. Palestinian people that want to go to live freely and to walk freely in Palestine, because people that are now living in the refugee camps in Syria or Lebanon cannot even go back to their houses or to their villages because most of them were massacred, were destroyed, but also because they don't have the right to go there. And even in the West Bank, people cannot go to a place from another. So it's not complicated. It's people that need to be free, people that need to have human basic rights. What is now happening in Gaza, I feel like if we let this happen, Gazans go into Sinai or, or in the desert of Jordan, we are crossing a boundary and we may let Israel do whatever they want to do. Because of this guilt, 
it's funny actually when they accuse us of being anti-Semitic because I feel like anti-Semitism was really important in Europe and is still. It's just crazy how they are trying to to turn the Holocaust memory to let a colonialist right-wing government do whatever they want. For example, right now there's also genocide in Congo happening and there's a lot of various problems happening in the world against human rights. And if we let Israel do what they want, people will lose hope. I feel like many lose hope in those international rights, international human rights, because we're like, why are they only applied to Westerners, but not us? They are saying they want to eradicate Hamas or eradicate Islam fundamentalism or whatever. But I feel like they're just creating new Hamas members, new reasons to make people be more radicalized. When you see your parents being killed, your whole family being killed and the world watching and without doing nothing, you have sometimes no other way because you have nothing to lose anymore. You have lost everything. I'm Rula Abuzaid O'Neill. I finished my PhD in sociology about Nakba and internal displaced Palestinian women. And I checked memory and the trauma and how the narrative, the Palestinian narrative of the internal displaced Palestinian women transfer from one generation to the other generation. I am an activist. I am a feminist, a human rights activist who came to Ireland nearly 17 years ago. I'm originally from Nazareth, a Palestinian citizen of Israel. And I had a huge career there on human rights, on women's rights and civil society and definitely in politics because being citizen of Israel and Palestine, politics is your daily life. It's like the air that you breathe. Gaza is under siege since 2006 or 2007 and that's the biggest open prison in the whole world with most populated area in the world. What happened is that citizens of Gaza, they don't have anything to lose. The feeling that we don't have anything to lose and That's the scary thing, that when people, they don't have anything to lose, they can't do what happened on October 7. That's my belief. The claim is to destroy Hamas. But how many fighters, Hamas fighters, they were killed among those Palestinians? And we speak nearly 20,000. How many? So it's not true. The claim is not true. They know where to find Hamas. But simply it's complete destruction of Gaza, of the civil infrastructure, hospitals, churches, mosques, universities, houses, everything, everything is destroyed. And you can see photos from Gaza, photos of kids, of what used to be houses and buildings. You and schools, they were targeted. Other international and humanitarian offices and facilities, they were targeted. So that's not about Hamas. Hamas will not be inside the church. Who was inside the church, hiding inside a church? There are civilians who found shelter inside the church. And more than 1,500 people, they were murdered there. And that's one of the historical church in the whole world. They will not be inside the Baptist hospital, that the first hospital that was targeted directly by Israel. They will not be hiding there. It's about a transferring and another continuing Nakba, uh, transferring people of Gaza to Sinai and taking their land.
the only hope is someone in the US, the UK could say, let's stop because what they are doing at the moment, regardless of what they say, this is not about Jews, it's not about Israelis themselves, it's about US and UK and some European interest. And they will just continue to fight us until the last Israeli man or woman standing. So somebody have to say, enough is enough because this project is failing. And let's go with possibly for South Africa style, where let's live together. Let's have one state. Whoever wants to be on that state on both sides is fine. Equal rights. But I can't see because... I can't see any leadership on their side. Since Ariel Sharon died, he was the last king of Israel, and they didn't have anyone else. You just hope that someone will accept that we are not going to disappear. We will be there. We will always be there. I will finish with this. Even if they kill all of us, they cannot win. Because even if you kill a whole population, what are you winning there? How can you survive after that? If the Nazis survived, they can survive if kill all the people in Gaza. They can't. Thank you. Okay, looking for a message for hope. I think maybe now the Israelis and Americans will learn that they've either got to wipe the Palestinians off the face of the earth, which they may actually be trying to do in Gaza at the moment, or else Palestinians will never be defeated. America should learn that it's on a hiding to nowhere. It is supporting a criminal regime, it's supporting a rogue state based on ethnic cleansing. There can be justice if Israel will give up its dreams of hegemony over an indigenous people and will actually agree to live with them in peace. I think there can be a peaceful situation. The model to be followed is not the two-state solution. The model to be followed is something like South Africa, which is not perfect. But if you remember back in the early 90s, there was actually a bunch of bitter-ender boers who wanted to carve out a smaller white state in South Africa, and the world just brushed that to one side. The two-state solution, essentially, is asking the Palestinians to accept something that the blacks of South Africa were never asked to accept. They were never asked to accept the pretense of sovereignty on small Bantu stands. So a one-state solution is the only hope. There's no military solution to this. Israel can't win this. It can flatten Gaza. It will only create something much worse than Hamas. And uh, Hamas can't win. You know, no resistance group can fight one of the largest militaries in the world and hope to win it. It's a pipe dream. There is no military solution. And if there's no military solution, then there has to be a peace process put in place. Defense and retribution are two very, very different things, you know. I mean, their stated objective is to wipe out Hamas. They won't get rid of Hamas. They may get rid of the leadership. But you think of the sort of U.S. action against al-Qaeda after September the 11th, 2001. They went to war against the Taliban in Afghanistan. There was some argument at the time that they should take a sort of a much more focused approach against al-Qaeda as opposed to going after the Taliban in Afghanistan. That didn't happen, but they did take out a whole swathe of al-Qaeda leadership. 
doesn't get rid of Al-Qaeda, you know, it comes back. The level of violence in most cases, you know, creates recruits. There was for a long time a kind of a dream of a single state, secular state, which would be a place that both Jews and Muslims and the Christian Arabs could live in as well. I think most people would say, no, that's not going to happen because it's simply not realistic with all the bitterness that's there. Is it in the minds of the average Israeli that they're living in places which were once somebody else's? Um, I doubt it. There's a bigger agenda here, or rather a bigger context. The big context is that the whole rules-based international order is what the post-1945 world was based on, really. In spite of the fact that you had the Cold War going on at the same time, there was a certain assumption that decisions could be made collectively which would serve everyone's interests and that you had a kind of a final forum to which things could be pushed and that that's the UN. And that was breached on several occasions, obviously. It was breached by the Arab-Israeli wars, for one thing. But I think what we're learning already from Ukraine is that the world is now returning to a much more primitive place where might is right. In a sense, we're back to the 19th century, except that the players have changed, because now you've got Russia, which I think is much weaker than it looks, really. You've got the United States, and then you've got China, um, and then you've got the rising power of certain developing countries, the so-called BRICS. And you're probably looking at the end of that period that we could say would be one where everything was settled by negotiation. And what comes after us? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the nightmare scenario obviously would include people deploying nuclear weapons and things like that. And the Russians could do it, and maybe the Israelis could do it. Everyone knows they have them. I think it's pretty scary from that point of view. I'd be very pessimistic. Not only have we seen huge protests of solidarity in Ireland, but also, say, in London, several hundred thousand people onto the street. But there are also huge protest movements and protest events happening in other parts of the world outside of Europe and North America. We tend, you know, almost inevitably, but not always very wisely, to have a very Atlanticist kind of view of these things. But there have been huge protests in across the Arab world. There have been huge protests in other parts of the world, huge protests in India, in other Muslim countries. I suppose, you know, what you take from that is that Ordinary people on the street, whether in the United States or in, in India, ordinary people are always ahead of their governments. They're nearly always ahead of their governments when it comes to understanding a situation or responding to a situation. I think that that solidarity activity is very important. In the belly of the beast in the United States, a Democratic representative was asking her colleagues rhetorical question, you know, how many Palestinians will it take for Israel to develop a conscience stop. And a Republican representative in the same legislature said all of them. In other words, this Republican was suggesting that all Palestinians should be killed. And this is in the United States. This is in the great democracy. But there are very vital and large protest movements in the United States, and they're worth attending to. I also think particularly in the American Jewish community, there's a very striking pattern of change and a kind of generational change between young people, let's say people under 30 or under 35, and their parents and grandparents' generation. American Jewish people developed a very, very strong identification with Israel, particularly in the wake of the 1967 war when Israel conquered the territories. And Israel has been a kind of totem that could not be attacked or criticized in the eyes of that particular generation, I suppose the baby boomer generation, until very recently. 
But if you look at the protests on American college campuses, including in the most prestigious, like Columbia and Harvard, the level of student protest, the level of American Jewish student protest through groups, wonderful groups like Jewish Voice for Palestine, that level of protest has been very, very striking. One of the things that Israel doesn't really realize, it doesn't properly understand, all these images of horror coming out of Gaza are deeply, deeply damaging Israel's profile in the country that matters most for Israel, which of course is the United States. Of course, it helps to fund it, it arms it, it gives it diplomatic cover and so on. And of course, there is dissent inside Israel itself, but it is real. What the solutions could be, right? You basically have two. One is ethnic cleansing, which you know I think is impossible. That's one solution. The other solution is I've heard from people in Palestine, which is a one-state solution where everyone's equal. Equal. That seems very far away. You know that would require an extraordinary change for both sides. How you get to that, I have no idea. Students always ask me, you know, well, what's the solution? These are very bleak times for the Palestinian people. And to be honest, I find it extremely hard to watch what's going on. It's just unbelievable. And, and, you know, all of the commentators, in terms of the amount of bombs that have been dropped and the destruction and the killing, the numbers that are being killed, the number of children being killed, the, the number of civilians being killed, it's really hard to think about the future. On the other hand, the resilience of the Palestinian people is amazing. <laughs> their solidarity with each other, their awareness, they're very clear, they're, you know, they're not going anywhere. That gives me hope, the deep commitment of Palestinians to being Palestinians, to remaining Palestinians, to staying on their land. For me, their cause is just. I want to say that if you look at the streets internationally, in Europe, in U.S., many areas on the world, the people, they support Palestine and they protest against the Israeli attacks and shelling and for ceasefire and for the kids of Gaza and the civilians of Gaza. There is no safe space. There is no safe place in Gaza. There is no safe time in Gaza, shelling day and night. So, and I feel myself, I feel very, I feel lots of shame when I'm trying to go to bed early just because my, my day was hectic. Palestinian parents, they don't have this opportunity to wrap their kids and to bring them hot drink or anything. The water that they drink, it's not suitable for human use, but there is no option. That's what I want to say. And I hope I'll say you're amazing, you're brave. You teach us lots of lessons. It's really crazy how people who suffered genocide are committing one at the moment. It's really crazy and it's even crazier to see countries like Germany. They had once a Nazi government and they always feel the guilt towards Israelis, but they are now imprisoning us under this guilt. Free us from your guilt because 
it wasn't us who committed the Holocaust and surely it is not you now. So if you have this guilt towards Israel and you want to support them, this should not be at the expense of other people or other population. And they are using the pain of the Jews. They are using the tragedy that happened to the Jews to justify this. But we don't fall for that because we understand that we have allies among Jews. We are getting to a place where we can see people recognizing our suffering, understanding more what is the Palestinian cause, what happened. They are reading more, they are educating themselves more, they are talking more. And despite all this, as I said, censorship by governments, but the people around the world, they still have conscience and they are acting upon it and they are acting upon human rights and human nature as of being empathetic towards each other and like feeling the pain of each other. This is solidarity and I'm proud of it. And I can say that with this going on and people speaking up for Palestine, there will be a day where everyone will look at Israel as what it is, a criminal terrorist state And I'm sure that this pressure on governments will lead to uh, holding Israel accountable for its crimes. I know what we endured and what we are enduring. Our day will come, like other nations. Our day will come. It's, it's at high expense, but it will definitely come. do small things. Um, and I think these are, yes, these are very small things, but, and maybe I'll finish with this, you know, the metaphor of a key and a door, a key seems like a very little thing, right? But it used to open a very, very big door, right? And I guess the big door that I'm hoping is opened by these very small actions is one which leads to a more peaceful future, whatever form that may take in which Jews, Christians, Muslims can once again live side by side in peace in this land with full democratic rights in which you don't have a state defined by that it's a Jewish state, a Jewish-only state, but rather you have, and I don't know what institutional form this will take, but in which the rights of all peoples are recognized. people in Palestine know anything you could say. I'm proud of us. I'll always be proud of us. Abdullah and 
Yeah. 